Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. Thursday, March 22nd, 2018, from Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. McMaster out, Bolton in, straight arrow, straight razor user, replaced by bushily stash Stradivarius of stupid strategy. From the clear pated but clear headed to the hirsute but harebrained, McMaster disappointed those who thought he'd be a cool, tempering influence. But you know what? He did seem intent on steering policy away from pure folly. In Bolton, we have a mustachioed menace of neocon adventurism. God help us, and as they say in royalist countries, God save the Secretary of Defense. This on the heels of, I'll give you the CNN headline, Dowd resigns as Trump's lawyer amid disagreements on strategy. Yes, Some disagreements. One side of that argument wanted to lash out in anger with weird punctuation and using as case precedent the last thing he saw on Fox and Friends. The other strategy was to try to avoid antagonizing the special prosecutor who could charge the client with crimes and bring the end to the client's presidency. And this is key to the client, forestall any possibility of ever seeing a Trump Tower rise over Sochi, Russia. Now, what is what is Dowd leaving mean for the Trump strategy? He could go harder against Mueller. But what should we read into it? Well, Trey Gowdy, Republican of South Carolina, who's leaving the House, had this to say on Fox News Sunday last Sunday. If you have an innocent client, Mr. Dowd, act like it. And so I just ask you, what does quitting right when you're on the verge of beating back this special prosecutor, which would surely... Increase your quote by a lot, if not your prestige. What does quitting tell you about Mr. Dowd's assessment of the underlying strength of Trump's legal case? Just putting it out there. On the show today, I spiel about the Department of Lesbian Qualification. You'll want to stay around for that. But first, he's the mayor of New Orleans, and he is the man who took down some monuments there. Mitch Landrew is on the gist. Mitch Landrieu is a rising star in the Democratic Party. Of course, as the son of a moon, calling the man a star might be, I don't know, an insult. He is the mayor of New Orleans. His sister was a senator. His father was a mayor and the HUD secretary. Mr. Mayor, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Your new book is In the Shadow of Statues, A White Southerner, You, Confronts History. And it's uh, an interesting conceit for a memoir. It's part memoir, but really enough of a memoir with your story of race relations so that we understand how you came to the decision and executed the decision to take down the statues of Confederates in your city. Is that a fair description? Well, it's generally the subject of the book is about race in America. Yeah. And um, I try to explain, as I have an obligation to do and a responsibility to do, why I took the actions that I took, not only in taking the statues down, but actually in rebuilding the city of New Orleans. It's, the book is about that through the vision of the monuments, but it's a much broader book that speaks to the issue of race 
and our inability to get through it and get us into a comfortable place in the country. Now, I use the phrase race relations, and this is a phrase that I sometimes have uh, faulted others for using because they do polling. And how are race relations under the Obama administration? That can mean anyone, depending on how you answer it. A racist might say, oh, things are going great because the black man's being oppressed, (laughs) right? So how do you look at it? Do you look at your duty when it comes to race as improving race relations or increasing the uh, status of African-American, Latino-Americans, all the races other than the majority in America? My experience throughout my entire life is that race has always been a part of it. It's been ever-present. I have had many white people talk about African-Americans in my presence, and while I simultaneously understood that what they were saying was completely wrong from the experience that I had. The images on TV about African-Americans were basically that they didn't like to work they didn't believe in God, they didn't believe in our country, and they were criminals. And I would say, well, wait, those, those aren't the people that I know, and I'm growing up with them in my neighborhood. I write it in the book that when my school was integrated, when the first African-American kids showed up, it was very personal to me right. because it was in second grade. And my girlfriend from first grade did not come back to school. And I was like, where did she go? And my parents had to explain to me, well, her parents took her to another school. Why did they do that? Well, because the school that you go to has African-American children. And I went, well, that's just weird. Yeah. And so, you know, in a weird way, from a kid's perspective, you began to have this thing pierce through your brain. But we're at a moment in the country right now where we have to really talk about this because it it feels as though some people want to go back. And when you say to an African-American and to many other people, let's go back wherever you want to go back to. The question is, well, well where, where do you want yeah. to go back to? And, As in the phrase, make and, America great again. Uh, again. Yeah. So it's the again. You know, people hear that. That's a dog whistle for a lot of people. Even though somebody who said it may not have intended or didn't know what they were saying, the sensitivity to people is like, where exactly do you want to take me to? And when you want to go back there, where was I? There's a lot of room in this country to debate about whether you're a communist, socialist, whether you're a conservative Democrat mm-hmm. or whether you're a moderate Republican, a conservative Republican, or all the way. I mean, yep. that entire spectrum. This and is now, what and now we got populism. American, you anything. got, all, you got yeah. all of that stuff. And we're a big country right. and we're diverse people. And the marketplace of ideas is where democracy is exercised. And there's a lot of room for all of that stuff. But I don't think that one of those issues that should be countenanced is the issue of white supremacy. In the history of the world, when that has been allowed to percolate and go up, bad things have happened. And I don't think you can take it for granted that that's not going to happen again. So when the issue of white supremacy begins to raise its head and the Klan shows up and all of these other folks, all of us as Americans, whether you're a liberal Democrat or a conservative Republican, anywhere on the spectrum has to say that's outside of the bounds. So this is the practical question. I don't know how many people, well, there are some who would argue with uh, the thesis you just put out there. But as a practical issue, now we have Tiki Torch Nazis rearing their heads in Charlottesville. Do you give them attention? Because attention must be paid and you don't want to keep your eye off it. But then again, when you do give them attention, it creates the situation where their ranks grow. Well, you know, that's an interesting question because when David Duke got elected to the legislature uh, in the early 90s, he was duly elected. Mm-hmm. He couldn't be dismissed from the legislature, but he won. Yep. And the democratic process produced him. When it began to be clear from the books that he was selling out of his legislative office that he was you know, propagating Nazi propaganda, et cetera, et cetera, I think we concluded and correctly, and I think this is right, that you have to confront that. You can't let it go. You have to acknowledge it. You have to identify it. You have to speak against it or it will grow. And this is exactly what happened with David Duke. 
that he actually created a movement where he decided to run for governor under the United States Senate. He got two out of every three white votes. Yeah. Until we talked about it enough where we started turning people who became more insightful about actually what he was doing. And really people of good conscience who were conservative said, you know what, I, I actually agree with that. We can't cross that rail. And I think that that's what has to happen in the country. I think that we have to say as a marker, yes, we're a democracy. People have a First Amendment right to say what we want. But everybody has got to stand up and say, but we don't accept that. Let's talk about David Duke. Uh, There is a parallel, though not an equation, between his rise and Donald Trump's rise. In what ways did your successful strategies in confronting David Duke, in what ways will that apply with Donald Trump, and in what ways won't they? I'll give you a won't. I don't think David Duke creates his own gravity in the way that Donald Trump does. Like Donald Trump, especially now that he's president, he could inject anything into the news. He could dominate the conversation, whereas Duke was more reliant on the establishment and the gatekeepers giving him attention. So with that stipulated, what are some of the lessons of how you confronted Duke with confronting Trump? Well, a couple couple things. First of all, I don't equate Donald Trump to David Duke. They're very different people. I was trying to make the point that politicians who are in a position of having a loud voice and are not paying attention to the demagoguery can either intentionally or unintentionally speak in dog whistle that actually relates to people who are racially bent. Mm-hmm. There are lots of people, for example, who think these monuments shouldn't come down and are not racist. There are a lot of reasons why people had for arguing about whether they should stay. But there's also a group of people that actually have them up there for the purpose of saying that white people are actually supreme to black people and that African-Americans are less than That is the reason why essentially those monuments have to be, in my opinion, removed or put in the appropriate context. And we have to say that that is a Rubicon that we are not going to that we are not going to cross. And we have to call each other into purpose and integrity, which is part of the entire history of the monuments, which were part of, as you see, preparing New Orleans for a 300th anniversary. So when you get to celebrate an anniversary, you not only start thinking about your past, you start thinking about your future and you ask yourself, are we ready for the future. Well, then you have to, well, what is the future? Why are people moving here? Where do we compete? How do we become economically strong? Well, isolation and racial structures are not what's going to help an economy grow or give people jobs or help the education system or the healthcare delivery system or close the gap between the disparities between the African-American community and the white community. That's all part of this particular moment that we're in. Okay. You mentioned that two out of three white voters voted for David Duke. and the sti- In the 90s. In the 90s. the 90s. But the statistics are not that different today. If you look at the Roy Moore election, I mean, if it was just white people, it'd be an overwhelming win for Mr. Moore without the vote of uh, black, especially black women. I don't know too many politicians who would win outside maybe the Northeast and California. What's up with white men and white people in the Democratic Party? Why has the Democratic Party lost white people in well, the South? Well, it's, it's a it's not just a party thing. I mean, it's it's a lot more complicated than just politics. And that's an interesting question. I don't think we know the answer to that. Some of it is racial, some of it, not all of it. It's not really fair to argue that everybody that voted for Donald Trump is a racist. Some of those same people voted for Barack Obama. But some people in the Democratic Party think, look, we don't need white people. We can just, you know, Go talk to African-Americans and Hispanic people, like assuming that they're all the same and they're somehow necessarily going to vote together, which is a bad assumption to make. And when we can run a base election, I think that's a mistake. I think that if you're running for office or if you're doing anything, if you're building a church, if you're building a football team, a basketball team, you ought to invite everybody to the party. If we actually started to be more inviting and more open and understand that we should run to our diversity rather than run away from it. And when you do that, you set up the possibilities of 
changing the tax code, investing in education, investing in healthcare, doing criminal justice reform. It is a slow haul towards the future. And there's a long way to go and a long slog. I just wanted to clearly and unequivocally say diversity is our strength. It's not a weakness. And when we're open to each other, we got a much better chance of getting to that American aspiration about a many we are one. Mitch Landro is the mayor of New Orleans. His new book is In the Shadow of Statues, A White Southerner Confronts History. Good to meet you. Thank you. The right to vote is the building block of our democracy. So this year, Slate's journalists will be offering expanded coverage of gerrymandering and voter suppression, investigating key legislative battles and court cases on the state and federal level. Although on the state level, can you really gerrymander? Just throwing it out there, Slate journalists. Anyway, Slate journalists will also offer new tools to help readers understand how the electoral sausage gets made. We're asking a lot of our readers and listeners to help fund our coverage, especially the vegans who hate sausage analogies. Find out how you could support this work today at slate.com slash voting rights. And now the spiel. Usually pronouns obscure. Here, here's an example. John Wilkes Booth and Abraham Lincoln were in Ford's theater one day, and one turns to the other and says, let me give you a piece of my mind. So who's the he in that sentence? Who's the my? Also, is Lincoln assassination humor too soon? If I were Kathy Griffin, would I be visited by the Secret Service for that joke? Or maybe the Pinkertons? But yesterday we had an example where a pronoun would have clarified a lot. Christy Quinn, former member of the New York City Council, said this of a prominent gubernatorial aspirant. Quote, Cynthia Nixon was opposed to having a qualified lesbian become mayor of New York City. Now she wants an unqualified lesbian to be the governor of New York. A more understandable remark to outsiders would have been something like, Cynthia Nixon didn't back me when I ran for mayor, but now she wants to be governor. See how easy that was? Also, I don't know who appointed Christine Quinn to the Lesbian Qualification Committee. Uh, She's a grade A lesbian. She's more of a C-minus lesbian. That one gets the junk bond of lesbian status. In fact, Cynthia Nixon saw the humor of this, saying to supporters at the Stonewall Inn, I just want to say that she was technically right, that I don't have my certificate from the Department of Lesbian Affairs, though in my defense there's a lot of paperwork required. Oh, those lesbians with their paperwork. So let's just say the Quinn's remarks were not just rude and petty and reductive. Also, technically, she was probably wrong. Uh, Cynthia Nixon might not be an unqualified lesbian, not because she's qualified or unqualified, but because she doesn't qualify as a lesbian. She has described herself really never as a lesbian. She says something like maybe closer to bi. Uh, She knows the word bisexual gets some people riled up. Well, it gets some people riled up in really salacious ways, but it gets other people all upset at just the word itself. Who knows? It qualifies as a dumb, dumb comment that Christine Quinn made and apologized for, and we've moved on. Except for one thing. Let's forget about the lesbian part. Let's forget about Christine Quinn. That's good advice. Is Cynthia Nixon qualified? Well, technically she is. Here are the qualifications under the New York State Constitution. You have to be at least 30 years of age, a United States citizen, and a resident of the state of New York for at least five years prior to being elected governor. So she qualifies. So she is qualified by definition. But does she have the requisite knowledge to do the job? She's smart. She's informed. She's politically active. But I gotta say, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. 
I hate it when celebrities run for office and we're supposed to take them seriously. If I'm going to argue that apart from being petty and thin-skinned and cruel and hateful and all that, you know, I've often argued that Trump was unqualified to be president. He was over 35. He was a citizen of the United States. Oh, so was Obama, by the way. But he lacked the requisite skills, knowledge, and experience. Now, perhaps you could argue that if a person had a surfeit of skills, that person could overcome a paucity of experience. But the main skill you have to have is something like self-awareness and competence and also an ability to delegate. You also, I'm going to put this out as a piece of advice for someone who comes to the presidency without any government experience. You shouldn't be a one-man walking definition of the Dunning-Kruger effect. You know the Dunning-Kruger effect? That's where people of low ability suffer from the illusion that they have superior cognitive ability. In fact, I predict the Dunning-Kruger effect will soon just be called the Dunning-Kruger-Trump effect because he embodies it more famously than anyone ever has. It will be a little like if Lou Gehrig's disease, before Lou Gehrig got it, if his teammate Tony Lazari, who was good, but not really as good as Lou Gehrig, if Tony Lazari had the disease, and for a while they called it Tony Lazari disease, but then Lou Gehrig got it, and they, had, and they said to Tony, hey, listen, man, we got to call this Lou Gehrig's disease. That guy is the disease. That's what I'm saying about Trump and Dunning-Kruger. He is the disease. But if we're going to be consistent, and if we're going to point out that Trump not only doesn't have the intellect and temperament to be president, but also he lacks the experience, why is it verboten to suggest that Cynthia Nixon doesn't have the experience to be governor? Now, if Nixon holds Governor Andrew Cuomo's feet to the fire over, say, his lack of leadership on issues like the MTA, that's good. But actually running the state? I mean, it's a little egotistical, isn't it? The first public office you run for is governor of the third biggest state and really the most important state in America, get elected to something else first. Familiarize yourself with the actual apparatus of government. I'm not saying you have to know every member of the Schenectady Water Board, but you do have to know where they get their funding from, who they report to. It's Paul LaFon, Commissioner of General Services. Look, Schenectady's a great punchline. It's also the ninth biggest city in the state. The thing about not being qualified, though, is, I will admit, you can get qualified. You can overcome that. And if Cynthia Nixon displays real knowledge and mastery in her campaign, I would consider voting for her if I were a registered Democrat. So being qualified really isn't that much like being a lesbian because we were all born unqualified, but one can choose to opt out of that status. Well, maybe being qualified or unqualified is a little bit like one's sexual identity as Cynthia Nixon thinks about it. And by the way, on this point, she is much, much better and more thoughtful than Andrew Cuomo. Here's what she said about the whole thing. Are you a lesbian? Are you bisexual? She says this, a certain section of our community is very concerned that it not be seen as a choice because if it's a choice, then we could opt out. Well, why can't it be a choice? Why is that any less legitimate? It seems to me we're conceding this point to bigots. I think that's a good point. I think Cynthia Nixon's very good on LGBT issues. Let's just see what ideas she has about the L, G, and B trains. And that's it for today's show. The failing New York Times purposefully wrote a false report stating I am unhappy with my producing team. Wrong. I'm very happy with producers Pierre Bienname, Daniel Schrader, and senior producer Mary Wilson. They are doing a great job. 
In unrelated news, Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is scouring the credits of several Fox podcasts just for some ideas to bolster the team. The gist. I say New York's been run by a Miranda long enough. Let's get a Charlotte in there. Or a Samantha. That'll be fun. Oomperoo, dapperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.